Inside the IC is sponsored by Microsoft Federal, the choice for classified missions. Welcome to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal on Federal News Network. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. Welcome to the latest episode of Inside the IC. My guest today is Larry Hanauer, Vice President for Policy at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. Hey, Larry, thanks for being with me today. Hey, thanks, Justin, for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And, you know, we're about a week away from the midterm elections here. And so Congress is, of course, not in town. But when they come back, one of their top agenda items will be passing the annual defense authorization bill. And as in recent years, it looks like the Intelligence Authorization Act will hitch a ride to that must-pass defense bill. Uh, Larry Insa wrote a letter recently to the leaders of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees endorsing a provision in the Senate's version of that intel bill, Section 506. Uh, It would allow key management and oversight personnel in cleared industry to apply for clearances, even though they do not bill directly to individual contracts. Tell us a little bit more about this issue and why it's an important one in INSA's view. Yeah, no, thanks for raising that. Um, INSA thinks that Section 506 of the legislation is important uh, because it's really necessary to ensure the cleared contractors can support government agencies effectively. Um, So what it does, as you said, is it allows corporate staff who work on multiple contracts to be eligible to get a security clearance. So right now, to be eligible for a clearance, a contractor has to bill to a specific contract. You have to do work directly on the, 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 the tasks specified in the contract. Um, But that means that shared corporate staff, so lawyers, billing staff, proposal teams, sometimes even C-suite executives can't get clearances. Now, a lawyer can't answer a question about a contract performance if they're not cleared to know anything about it. So this poses real difficulties when companies are trying to execute their contracts um, uh, effectively and efficiently, um, or even bid for new contracts, um, because you need the pricing teams and the billing teams and the accountants to all have some insights into the work that's going to be done. So Section 506 of the Intelligence Authorization Act, which, as you said, is going to be incorporated into the Defense Authorization Bill, would direct the DNI, who manages security policy for the federal government, to create a process that would enable these personnel to get cleared. Um, So INSA encourages Congress to include this provision in the final legislation authorizing the intelligence activities in fiscal 23. And that's as we speak, those, those provisions are still being negotiated. Got it. And it strikes me that this probably isn't a new issue. What's the the legacy of of kind of that policy and why is it coming to a head, I guess, uh, in this year's legislation? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a new issue. I mean, this has been the practice uh, for government contracting for a while, and it's it's rooted, I think, in part in the desire to keep the number of people who have security clearances to the minimum necessary uh, to do the work, which, generally speaking, you know, is a is a reasonable goal. Um, but you have to define do the work a little bit more broadly. The people who are doing the work aren't just the ones who are, uh, you know, looking at a spreadsheet or looking through databases for forty hours a week. There's a whole uh, a whole community of people behind them who make that work possible. So even in government agencies, they have accounting people and they have payroll people and they have IT people. And you know they're not doing the core mission work of an agency, but they're all critical 
to ensuring that the agency is able to execute its mission? Well, it's the same with industry. Um, industry may have a, a, a certain number of people who are working directly on a contract, but behind them uh, is a whole team of shared corporate staff who make their work possible. It's coming to a head now, frankly, because, um, because companies are just having challenges getting these contracts executed because those shared staff don't have insights into the work that their own employees are doing. So, uh, so a number of companies that are members of INSA have told us of, of their challenges. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that Congress was aware of the, uh, the, the obstacles um, to cleared contractors executing their contracts effectively. And that's why we wrote that letter to the House and Senate Intelligence Committee leaders. Got it. And, and so that provision is in the Senate's version of the bill today. Do you expect any pushback on the provision as it kind of gets into negotiations? Well, we're not really sure, but we don't really see any reason for, for pushback. I mean, this is the provision is designed to make sure that uh, contractors are able to execute the contracts they've already been given effectively. So if agencies need their industry partners to do um, to do certain tasks, um, this is just a, an administrative requirement that's necessary for contractors to do the work as effectively and efficiently as possible. Got it's a pretty it. common sense provision, we think. It sounds like it. And I mean, you know, you wrote a recent op-ed for us over at Federal mm -hmm. News Network, kind of casting this provision within broader acquisition reforms that could be made within the IC. And I'm wondering yep. if you could delve into that a little bit further, because acquisition reform was an issue, I guess, for the Defense Department. Uh, back in, you know, 2016, 2017, there was a whole split up of the acquisition office reorganization and I guess acquisition reform in the NDAA and hasn't really been as high profile of an issue. But it looks like there are a lot of recommendations that you guys have for how the IC intelligence agencies could do acquisition better going forward. What are what are some of those? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, so first of all, acquisition reform, as you as you say, is sort of an evergreen issue, right? It's a challenge for the intelligence community. It's a challenge for the Defense Department. And that's partly because it's just so complex and it involves so many different actors and, and so many different tasks and so much money. Um, so, uh, you know, acquisition reform is something that INSA is, is advocating for in a, in a number of different ways, um, because the intelligence community's procurement process, it's just too cumbersome and it's, it's just not working effectively for either government or industry. You know, the contracts focus too often on activity rather than generating results. Uh, the process takes too much time and the emphasis on past performance makes it harder for small companies that may not have a long record of past performance to contribute to the mission. Now, a few years ago, the, the, uh, the DNI's top acquisition official came to INSA and asked us to provide some insights about how to make the services acquisition process more efficient. So we created an acquisition management working group uh, comprised of uh, INSA member company executives, but also some government officials. We interviewed people in both the public and private sectors, and we developed a comprehensive report about how to improve services acquisition uh, that we then briefed to a council of senior acquisition executives from across the intelligence community. We're not sure all of the ideas were path-breaking, but we think our ideas helped shape some initiatives in the IC that were designed to make the acquisition process more agile. Now that said, in the op-ed that we wrote, we did identify a number of issues that we think need to be addressed, some concrete issues. And I can go through a couple of them. One of them, and this is a particularly important one for industry, but also for, for government, is the idea that agencies should really issue contracts that rely more heavily on statements of objectives rather than statements of work. So a statement of work or a SOW 
typically focuses on what the contractor needs to provide. It's certain types of expertise, technology, or, or often even just labor hours. It basically specifies inputs. So basically a SOW is a contract for activity and it's considered fulfilled when that activity is completed regardless of what it yields. Now, a SOW tells the contractor what to do, not how to do it. Um, so it encourages predictability rather than innovation. And it puts the risk on the government. If the activity is completed without generating the results the government expects, then the government still got what it's contracted for. Now, a statement of objectives, or, or SUE in contrast, focuses on results, what's to be accomplished by the contract. So it ensures that the government gets the outcome that it wants. Um, a SUE also gives the contractor more autonomy to apply innovative ideas or technologies because it's the company that's on the hook to generate results. And if it does so efficiently, then the company has an opportunity to generate a larger profit. Um, most importantly for the government, um, a SUE puts the risk on the contractor because the company is obligated to produce the desired outcome. So if the intelligence community wants innovation and results, it should, it, it should issue more contracts containing statements of objectives rather than statements of work. It sounds as if this is something that the intelligence community can take on today. There's no legislation or anything like that hanging out there that would kind of push them along at this point, right? No, that's right. It's it's really a decision by agencies on you know what the what the best approach is to executing a certain contract. Got it. All right. And another issue that you raise in your op-ed uh, comes down to classification and the classification mm -hmm. of tasks. How can intelligence agencies allow more tasks uh, to be undertaken at the unclassified level? And why is that important in your view? Well, uh, you know, we learned during the pandemic pretty much out of necessity that a lot of intelligence work can be done outside of a SCIF at the unclassified level. A lot of research and analysis is based on open source information. That doesn't need to be done at a SCIF. Often discrete tasks that may be part of a classified contract are themselves unclassified and don't need to be done in a SCIF. Uh, a good example of that is a software development project may use unclassified tools and code, but incorporate classified data. So in that case, the coders may be able to develop the software in an unclassified facility, and then the classified data can later be loaded into it on the uh, classified system in a SCIF. But to take advantage of these, of these flexibilities, the contracting process has to change. So contracts often specify that all tasks on a classified contract have to take place in a secure facility. They sometimes even specify that the task be performed in a government secure facility rather than a contractor secure facility, even though the two meet the same security requirements. Um, so, so those kinds of uh, flexibilities need to be considered when the government is writing a contract. Also, what's interesting is that permitting more unclassified tasks gives companies hiring flexibility. If the contract allows, they may be able to hire uncleared people to perform unclassified tasks. Um, some IC agencies have, have been doing work this way themselves. So NGA, for example, has a new facility in St. Louis that includes a large amount of unclassified space for people to do unclassified work. And it enables the agency to hire people and put them to work on agency missions while they wait um, for the new hires clearances to come through. So, uh, so by, by shifting discrete tasks um, or, uh, or even entire contracts when possible to an unclassified level and enabling flexibilities about where a contract can be executed, um, the government can really uh, enable industry to apply its expertise in an effective and innovative way, maybe enable some cost savings and certainly take advantage of additional people and skills. Got it. And you know, the uh, Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, 
recently told lawmakers that the White House is actually leading a review of classification policies. And she has, of course, in the past said that overclassification hurts national security from a number of different perspectives. Of course, it's not just um, about, you know, how, how intelligence contractors can can do the work for the IC, but mm-hmm. do you, you expect that this this review could yield some potential outcomes that, you know, you're asking for here to just make things more efficient within the intelligence community? Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, the DNI is absolutely right that overclassification is harmful to national security. The Bipartisan Public Interest Declassification Board, which is set up to look at at declassifying uh, information, agreed with her and and wrote to President Biden last May, for example, that the classification and declassification system is in crisis and near failure. And, you know, the, the board noted that the processes we use now to classify, declassify and safeguard information is basically the same as when the, the rules were created by President Truman back in 1951. So a lot has changed since 1951 and the declassification process really needs to change along with it. Look, a, a lot of information on defense and intelligence issues needs to be kept secret, but a degree of transparency um, is, is critical for a number of reasons. So first and foremost, uh, transparency promotes trust among the American public and is, is thus critical to a democracy. You know, conspiracy theories breed in the absence of information. So the more information the government can provide about its activities and analyses, the more the public can engage in, in constructive, open, and honest debate about critical national security issues. Um, Second, transparency makes it easier for the government to function. Security rules make it really hard to work with information as as people in the the cleared workforce know. They restrict who can contribute, how information has to be handled and processed, and how it can be used. So if information doesn't have to be subject to these kinds of restrictions, then both government and industry can do their work more effectively and efficiently. Um, Third, unclassified or declassified information can be shared more widely with allies and partners, which enables the United States to collaborate more effectively with like-minded nations on shared interests. So we've seen this year how declassified intelligence and unclassified open source information about Russian activities in Ukraine have bolstered U.S. diplomatic outreach and efforts to keep Europe on board with a consistent transatlantic approach to the issue, and also enhanced Ukrainian military capabilities on the ground. So, you know, while all this argues for more open source intelligence collection and analysis, which is an important capability that needs to be fostered. It also argues for the declassification of U.S. intelligence uh, in support of broader policy and military objectives. And again, that's Larry Hanauer, Vice President for Policy at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. We're going to take a short break, but we'll pick up the conversation when we come back. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. With the broadest range of breakthrough technology solutions, Microsoft Azure for Government is the choice for classified missions. Built for government agencies and their partners, unlock insights, build new capabilities, and empower collaboration in secret and top-secret environments. Microsoft Azure is built for national security missions, combining cloud-native capability with classified networks, hybrid and multi-cloud, to create a developer-friendly platform that is ready anywhere and secure everywhere. Visit MicrosoftFederal.com. That's MicrosoftFederal.com. Welcome back to Inside the IC. I'm your host, Justin Doubleday, and I'm speaking with Larry Hanauer, 
Vice President for Policy at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. And, and continuing to pull on this thread of just how, you know, intelligence professionals can process, kind of use information and, and contribute to, uh, you know, whatever mission they're contributing to. You also raised this issue of shared SCIF spaces yeah. in your uh, your op-ed. And I, I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about what these are, these like WeWorks for classif- yeah. classified folks? Uh, is there, are there coffee machines and cool stuff like that too? Or what are those all about? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they'll have, I don't know if they'll have kombucha on tap, um, although that would be nice, but they are kind of like WeWork spaces. And, you know, the economy as a whole over the last, you know, 10 years or so, at least up until the pandemic, um, started shifting to people having a lot more flexibility in where they do their work because the focus was really on how people did their work and what they produced. So uh, so why not apply the same logic to the trusted workforce? Shared SCIFs would make cleared industry support to the intelligence community more effective and efficient. Maybe most importantly, they'd enable small businesses, which often bring innovative new solutions to a problem, to contribute to classified work. So right now, many small businesses don't have the resources to build a SCIF and get it certified, right? That's a costly and time-consuming process. And but without access to a SCIF, they can't get a contract that allows it to do classified work. They can't even read or respond to a classified RFP so they can bid on a classified contract. So the only way that a small business can get SCIF access is to be a subcontractor to a larger company. Um, so small businesses could use a shared SCIF to read the RFPs, bid on classified contracts, build classified technology prototypes, and then do classified work without having to sub to a larger prime contractor. And by making it possible for more small businesses to do intelligence work, shared skips can bring innovation and agility into the intelligence community. Interestingly, shared skips also create flexibility for the existing cleared workforce, and they make it higher for both government agencies and private industry that might take advantage of shared skips to hire and retain cleared staff. So I think there's wide agreement that we have a bit of a crisis in the cleared workforce. It's increasingly difficult to hire and clear people who have advanced technology skills, foreign language fluency, and and other necessary abilities, particularly when Silicon Valley tech firms can hire them uh, in an instant at twice the salary without having to go through a clearance process. And it's, it's harder to hire and retain cleared personnel if they have to make a long commute into their organization's skiff. The key issue is that they do their work in a secure space. So why does it matter where that space is located? You know, just like we were talking about, if you had a WeWork office near your home, you could get your work done there instead of commuting into a city and being at a company headquarters. So why not apply the same logic to cleared work? I know someone who works uh, at the Treasury Department who lives out near Dulles Airport. But rather than make the, the, I don't know, hour to hour and a half one-way commute into downtown D.C. every morning, she often works at a treasury skiff that's out in the suburbs close to her house. So why can't we make that flexibility available to contractors as well? Um, being able to work out of a shared skiff closer to home would reduce the burden of doing cleared work and make it easier to keep top people in the trusted workforce. We talked about legislation before. The current draft of the Intelligence Authorization Act being considered in Congress has a provision, Section 511, that directs GAO to review the use of SCIF space and make recommendations on how to make more efficient use of SCIFs in both government and industry. And we think that when GAO looks at this, it will consider whether and to what degree shared SCIFs might be able to alleviate problems uh, and shortcomings, uh, short shortages in uh, in secure workspace. So INSA has encouraged Congress to include this provision in the final legislation as well. Got it. And and I think you wrote that there are only a handful of these shared SCIF spaces around the country today. And so in your view, there should be 
a whole lot more and they should be open to contractors as well, which they really aren't yep. today. Is that is that right? Well, it depends. I mean, a, a skiff has to have a sponsor, right? So if a company wants to build a skiff, it has to have a contract that requires one. So it needs a, the agency issuing that contract to sponsor the skiff, inspect it, certify it, etc. So the challenge with shared skiffs is you might have multiple companies uh, doing classified work for multiple government sponsors in the same space. So what agency would sponsor the skiff, inspect it, certify it, and the like? That's kind of a bureaucratic question. It's really not important what agency signs the paperwork and, and does the inspection because everyone who uses that skiff would be doing work that furthers the intelligence community's mission, the Department of Defense's mission, and overall the nation's interests. So what's really important is that the community uh, figure out how to build and, and certify and open up these skiffs so that private industry can use it. It doesn't matter which agency's signature is on the signature line. It's just the, the skiffs just need to be available for people to use. Some agencies, like I said, the, the, like I cited a Treasury Department example, they have skiffs out in the suburbs that make it easier for people who live further away from downtown to do work. Other agencies have similar kinds of arrangements. You know, nowadays you don't need to be in the same office as your boss or your team uh, in order to do your work. You just need to be on the same network. Um, so if you can get into a secure facility that's close to home, if you can get into a, a shared skiff that that's pre prevents you from having to commute 90 minutes each way, uh, you can do all the same networked work with your team on the high side. So why not make it happen? Got it. And it's, it sounds like it's something that, you know, the intelligence agencies have to come together and really determine this is a priority for them. And it seems like it plays into this future of work within the intelligence community mm -hmm. conversation um, that's that's really been ongoing since since the pandemic. One other Absolutely. issue that you raised has been the understaffing of acquisition professionals. Uh, what's yeah. going on there? Yeah, that's a big problem. So the intelligence community's acquisition workforce is about 20% understaffed, uh, and it's generally less experienced than it should be, than it's than it's set up to be. So what this means is that contracting officers aren't as well positioned to understand what their program manager clients want. Right? They don't understand the agency's programs and missions as well, which makes it harder for them to translate the, the goals of the agency or the goals of a program manager into an effective contract. It also means the contractor, the contracting officers are less aware of authorities that could give a company the ability to execute a contract more flexibly or draw on innovative technologies and practices. And it means that if they're more junior, they're less likely to maybe push the envelope a little bit or ask questions um, and try to find some of those flexible authorities that could promote um, some innovation and promote greater efficiency. So really, we INSA encourages the, the government to take this seriously, to really uh, focus on, as it focuses on workforce challenges as a whole to focus on improving the acquisition cadre. So on November 30th, INSA is going to hold a virtual panel discussion where we examine the, the challenges with recruiting, training, and retaining um, acquisition professionals. And so anyone who wants to attend that event can register online at insaonline.org. And I think we'll explore a number of the challenges that, that are facing the acquisition workforce and how agencies may be able to make some improvements. Got it. Sounds like an interesting panel. All right. You know, we've talked about a couple different legislative provisions to watch out for here in the NDAA and the uh, related mm -hmm. Intel authorization bill. Are there any other provisions uh, in this fiscal 2023 legislation that you're tracking particularly closely? 
Yeah, there are a few. So the Intelligence Authorization Act language that's being considered in Congress has a, a couple of provisions um, that, that we're tracking and that we think will make the IC and its industry partners um, operate more effectively. So let me just highlight two or three provisions actually focused on two issues. So, so one issue is uh, the question of polygraphs. The bill language has two provisions in it that we think will, will ultimately make the polygraph process more efficient. The backlog of people needing uh, polygraphs for IC jobs is just enormous. It can take a contractor who holds a collateral top secret clearance more than a year in some cases to schedule a polygraph and so then move to a contract that now requires a polygraph to execute. So these kinds of delays make it really difficult for cleared industry to support their clients in the IC and that in turn makes it more difficult for the IC to execute its missions. Um, Section 504 of the bill uh, as it currently stands, directs GAO to assess the intelligence community's polygraph capacity, including the number of polygraphers available and the number who might be needed in order to reduce the backlog. So whether whether the solution is uh, opening up another polygrapher school, um, figuring out how to recruit and hire more polygraphers, um, or maybe even changing the policy on what kinds of um, situations require polygraphs, um, GAO is going to be tasked to look at that challenge. Then there's another section, section 505, that calls on the DNI to set timelines within which polygraphs have to be conducted. So right now, there's no timeliness standard. And if there's no standard, then the current policy can't be considered to have shortcomings. Um, so therefore, there's no need to devote resources to fix the problem, because there's no problem. So by setting a timeliness standard, uh, the bill would require the IC to reduce the backlog by taking probably one of three actions. Uh, one is change the policy on polygraphs so that they're required in, in fewer situations. Uh, two, maybe train more polygraphers, however that gets done. Uh, or three, require agencies to accept polygraphs conducted by other agencies, essentially polygraph reciprocity, which astoundingly they don't have to do. And we know of a lot of cases where one agency will say, well, you may have a polygraph conducted by another agency. We don't think that's good enough for some reason. So we're going to make you go through that all over again. And by the way, it's a year long wait. So so sit tight until we can get that done. And that's just inefficient. So, so INSA thinks the passage of, of these two sections, section 504 and 505, would make it easier for both government employees and clear contractors to, to get the polygraphs they need to get their jobs done. Um, there's another issue, and, and this isn't actually addressed in the legislation, but it's a perennial issue that INSA is tracking um, and that causes real challenges um, for cleared industry. And that's the, um, the, the program to reform the handling of controlled unclassified information, or CUI. The CUI initiative was designed to protect sensitive but unclassified information, the you know, language that used to be tagged with labels like for official use only or law enforcement sensitive or that kind of thing. And there were a lot of categories of that. And so the CUI program was set up to try to simplify the process. But, but instead, the program that was created has more than 120 distinct categories of CUI, each one of which has unique protections uh, and rules associated with it. So compliance with, with these, these complex CUI rules is going to require government agencies and contractors to invest enormous amounts in IT systems and document control systems to govern access and make sure that only people who are approved for a certain category uh, can access the information. And by the way, each agency also um, implements the rules differently, which means you've not only got 120 categories of CUI information, you've got another couple of dozen agencies that, that interpret each one of those rules differently. So INSA published a paper about a year ago that calls on the National Archives, which administers the CUI program, to reevaluate whether the program advances its goals, uh, to simplify the rules, which were frankly designed for an environment 
dominated by paper documents rather than electronic data, um, and then also change the requirements based on how government agencies and contractors actually handle uh, electronic information. So uh, so we, we hope there'll be some reforms um, to the CUI program. I know the archives is currently reconsidering um, some of the some of the provisions in the program, uh, and we're following that carefully uh, because we want to make sure that this program simplifies the process of handling sensitive information rather than make it more complicated and burdensome. Got it. Yeah, it seems like so many of these issues come down to just how complex and uh, labyrinth-like the, the processes are in, in the IC and in the intelligence community for accessing information, being cleared to access information, and uh, just work either for uh, an intelligence agency or a, a contractor. Right. And if you think about the way classified information is handled uh, electronically in government, right, there's a secret level network, there's a top secret level network, and then there are a small number of other specialized networks. But what the CUI requirement would do would basically require companies and agencies to compartmentalize parts of their networks so that each category had its was governed by its own access control rules. And if you can just think about the headaches of keeping track of, you know, well, who's now um, supposed to be able to access information in category X, who has to be read off of category X, where on the server is the information on category X stored? How do you keep track of who accesses it? I mean, those are complicated enough, you know, in the in the in the classified realm. Um, but to create a new system where you have to create 120 different uh, systems for doing uh, for tracking that information, that's really, really complex and creates a huge um, financial burden on contractors to comply with these requirements, and then just creates a whole separate auditing and compliance uh, challenge. Yeah, it's, it's it just seems like uh, all that is happening. Uh, you know, it's almost like creating a whole new classification system as we're having this conversation about, you know, reforming classif the classif current classification system and declassifying more things. Um, and, and I should note that CUI categories range from, you know, aircraft designs to agricultural information. It's really broad category of, of information. Right, to like historic sites that need preservation mm -hmm. and things like that. And there may be very good reasons why this information shouldn't be slashed on the page, the front pages of a newspaper. But the, the whole idea of the CUI program was designed to foster greater sharing of information in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. And instead, by creating all these different silos of information, it, it's really hindered sharing and, and made the whole process of protecting information in general a lot more complicated. All right. Well, there's a lot to be uh, paying attention to. So Larry Hanauer, he's the vice president for policy at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. Larry, thanks for lending us your insights. Yeah. Thanks. Anytime. Glad to take part. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your shows.